this was really a part of that vision that I described, I don't know, four or five episodes back when I really, I, you know, I was asking God and Holy Spirit and um, Jesus, um, how can we even do church without a general fund? And what I saw was a picture of leadership. You know, what, what does hold this movement together? <laughs> Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we're seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. That's right. I'm Kent. And I am Nathan. And we're in a series called Simple Church. We're working through a document Nathan wrote, kind of outlining some, some key ideas and some non-negotiables for him. And so we're using that as our series guide. To, we've been talking about the freedom that the gospel mandates that we have, that each yeah. individual has. We talked about that last week. More on that. Um, as a society of liberated individuals, we will observe and defend the freedom of every member to live by the faith of Christ. Now, I think that's what we talked about last mm-hmm. week. So go back, folks, to last week's episode. Leaders in this If you're church, still listening after last week's episode. <laughs> if you haven't written us off. <laughs> right, yeah. Leaders will safeguard the church from threats through sound teaching and with spiritual authority. What? What? They will also have the authority to designate other leaders under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Leaders will be obliged to safeguard gospel fidelity through admonition and where necessary exclusion of wayward members from participation in mutual ministry. They will not have the authority to obligate resources belonging to any member for any corporate purpose. Now that last point, that's the general fund. Yeah. We talked about in a, in the first episode today, I want to talk about these middle two points. Leaders will safeguard the church from threats, sound teaching, spiritual authority and designate other leaders under the direction of the Holy spirit. Okay. This all sounds high minded. Yeah. Nathan. This is very I idealistic. Yeah. And I want to know what it is. What is this spiritual authority yeah. that they have? <clears throat> And they have this to teach and they have this to designate other leaders under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, man, this is problematic too. Okay, so it seems that there are two mechanisms for leadership in, at least as we see in Scripture, in the, like, so we really can't use Scripture for precedent and it wasn't meant to be that way, okay? So I've got to say that as a caveat on the front, like, uh, you know, if we go back and we rifle through the book of Acts and we look at everything they did and we try to mimic it, um, we're going to end up with something messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, we just don't have the vantage point to know exactly what it was that they did. We don't have enough material. And what we have is oftentimes uh, contradictory, uh, that at least seemingly so. So <clears throat> that's difficult. Um, also, as we talked about last time that the, and maybe two times ago, but the, but the gospel is necessarily contextual that it, it has to speak to somebody within their own culture, meet them with their own norms and then begin to undermine those cultural norms that are wrong, you know, that are out of sync, I guess, with, um, God's intention for humankind. And, and that's true in many cases, you know, mm-hmm. cultures are not perfect, but every culture has some idea of what is right, what is wrong that really can be redeemed and, and does speak to, um, the gospel, the genius of God, his creation. Um, and, and so we need to learn from various cultures and their various emphases on, on right behavior. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> The gospel is necessarily contextual and it's also subversive, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it lives in this paradox, right? Which means that we can't use somebody else's, um, use of the gospel as a norm. Mm-hmm. If we do, we've already undermined this idea of contextuality in the gospel. Okay. So that's, I don't know, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's a review, right? That's a review. Um, but and I say that as a caveat to the idea that I'm now saying, well, what we see in Scripture, <laughs> uh-huh, because right. we can be informed by it. I mean, it, it's foolish to um, not learn from other people's wisdom mm-hmm. and benefit from their own mistakes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think the record's given for that reason. And so 
as we look, what we see, and, and this is kind of my approach is that, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm bound to um, the precedents. At the same time, I would be a fool not to learn from them, mm-hmm. not to defer in some cases, in many cases to Paul or to the other apostles. You know, they obviously were close to Jesus. We know they've lived these lives that were faithful to the end. Um, but uh, one of the things that, and, and this is the challenge, I think, for me and for a lot of people who would aspire to leadership is that at least at that time, um, authority also came. And so authority came from, and there was an ecclesiastical authority. So if a group of established leaders laid hands on somebody and, and ordained them or endorsed them, and really they're getting this all the way back from Moses, right? Moses is uh, conferring the Holy Spirit, some of his calling over to the 72, you know, Jesus. Did he lay comes. hands on them? I don't, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm going to have to go back. Laying on of hands was a part of that Levitical system. And I just got to go back and look mm. at the various places where it's mentioned. But mm. yeah, that there's a, that there's that endorsement that comes through the laying on of hands. Mm. So there's kind of this, <clears throat> at least a, a delegation of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it seems to me largely ceremonial and public because Paul says, don't do that um, hastily to, to Timothy, uh-huh. right? That, that this is um, a public endorsement of somebody. Uh-huh. And he says, you know, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Don't be a participant or a partaker in somebody else's sin. Uh-huh. So there's something like you, you know, if you endorse somebody who's not ready, uh-huh. you've set them up for failure and you are publicly associated aligned with them when they do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that seems to have been that, but, and so there's an ecclesiastical authority that we see in scripture that comes through or this ordination. Okay. From one authority to another that can be conferred. And uh, that seems to have been important, but it, it seems to be secondary to a spiritual authority that, um, came from God. Okay, so ecclesiastical authority, I just realized people may not realize that's church, church authority, right. organizational authority. Right, yeah. Spiritual authority comes from God. Yeah, so that organizational authority, we might call it positional authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a secular vernacular, we could say someone has a moral authority or something. You know, if, you, if somebody just has a gravitas about mm-hmm. them in a secular organization, mm-hmm. right? And, and we just, people just want to listen to them because they tend to be right. Even though they may not have a title, people mm-hmm. go to them because they have the answers, they have the wisdom, and people go to them. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of moral authority. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a nerd and you watched, um, any, uh, if you watched any of the Marvel's Avengers movies, there's a scene that I, I like to show every now and then. Um, that shows this distinction between this kind of personal moral authority and this uh, positional authority. Okay. And so at one point the aliens are coming and the, and the Avengers are fighting them, right. And the cops are all there and um, they're trying to fight the aliens and Captain America lands on the top of this car and he starts telling the cops what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. you get up on that roof and you go over here and, and the, and the, and the police captain's like, wait, who are you, right? Mm-hmm. And at that moment, these aliens come down, and, you know, Captain America, you know, just knocks one, uh, you know, off, and he hits another one with his shield and all this, and takes out all four aliens in about five seconds, mm-hmm. okay? And this captain kind of looks and goes, okay, you, up on that roof, and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. he starts telling everybody to do what that guy said, right? So that there's this kind of... Um, authority that comes through um, a demonstration of competence uh-huh. in the first century church that came that was made apparent through the spiritual gifts. So if somebody, like Paul says, when you read, you can perceive my understanding of the mystery. Paul saying, I seem to have an insight that transcends ordinary human learning. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for him to detect that God had always wanted to bring in the nations through, um, through Israel Mm -hmm. was a new idea. It was foreign, you know, uh, at least 
on the order that he was doing it. Mm-hmm. That that Messiah had come for this purpose, uh, largely. And, and, and so he's using that as exhibit A, because he's writing to people that he's never met. At the end of the Ephesian letter that he begins, or you know, in Ephesians 3, he says, when you read, you can perceive my understanding in the mystery. Mm-hmm. Okay? <clears throat> and when he... When he, in his closings, you know, he's like talking about how my he has a heart for those people he's never met. Mm-hmm. So it seems that he has to establish some sort of authority with people that he's never been in their immediate presence. Now, remember, this isn't this is very early in the Christian experiment, there's no establishment, you know. Mm-hmm. So, where does authority come from? Why does Paul come and assert you should do what I say? To anybody, you know, some of them, he says, you're the result of my ministry. Mm-hmm. And that's a very natural kind of authority. But mm-hmm. again, that authority wasn't conferred on him by another person or by agency of another. It was <clears throat> primary um, and had to be demonstrated. He had to say, look, I went to this town <clears throat> and people came. And they knew Jesus, right? And the signs of an apostle were on me. Mm -hmm. And then he says to somebody else, well, you didn't see that, but you can read it. Mm -hmm. You can see that what I'm saying is something that is new. It's unique. It's, it seems to be divinely empowered. So I I think that a, a good example of this sort of, agreement this sort of synergy between conferred authority positional authority and um this personal moral authority is in Acts 6 when they ordain this set of deacons okay so the apostles have this moral authority uh initially the spiritual authority right the Holy Spirit falls on them in Pentecost. They're performing signs and wonders. People are like, what's happening here? And these people are kind of the fountainhead, the founders of this movement as, you know, they were chosen by Jesus. Right. Exactly. So that's a kind of, um, that's a kind of positional authority. It's like he ordained them. He did. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of those who are following them, it's almost like a, just almost purely the spiritual authority. You know, they've just been like, what is this? Okay, mm-hmm. now, the fact that they had been with Jesus does speak to the idea that he had endorsed them personally. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the second generation of leadership. The um, widows are being neglected. The Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the daily administration of food. So there's there's a defect, right? The church is kind of, <clears throat> they're, they're um, still immature in their approach. And um, they ha- it needs to be fixed. The apostles say, we can't do it, appoint some people. But they don't just say, get anybody. Uh, and they don't just grab their friends. They say, choose from among yourselves. Find us seven men who are full of faith and wisdom. And um, we will appoint them over this work, right? Um, later it says, and so they chose seven men who are, let me see, choose seven men who are full of faith in I think this the Holy Spirit. Spirit. I yeah. think it says the Spirit. But yeah. later it says faith and wisdom. Um, <clears throat> but then after once they're presented, so these people have a moral authority, uh-huh. right? That they're acknowledged and recognized as leaders among the church already. Mm-hmm. That the church would tend to listen to them anyway. But then they're presented to the to the apostles, and the apostles lay hands on them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then it says uh, when it speaks of them individually, it says Philip filled uh, with and 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 also Stephen but Philip filled with faith and power was performing miracles that was different you know so that there's this what came what came out of that laying on of hands I think was some empowering of some sort but it was also an official recognition so people are like where there's a question as to who has the right to do what Right, that, and everyone's looking to the apostles to settle it. Now you have an extension of the apostles, these seven, mm-hmm. who carry the authority of the apostles, uh, you know, in a in a delegated way. So that when somebody asks the question, you know, what should we do here or whatever, there's mm-hmm. there's some arbitration to be made. It can be made by these guys, and they're seen by the group. 
And I just think that's important. I don't know that every time, I, I don't know that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit obviously doesn't have to be given through the laying on of hands. <clears throat> but I think that if someone is a faithful minister of the gospel and they have spiritual gifts, that when they lay on hands, that they can confer that God endorses their endorsement, that he backs them up. Mm-hmm. Just like if we pray in Jesus' name and he answers it, you know, God is is doing this on Jesus' behalf through us. Mm-hmm. So I think that the laying on of hands is that same thing, but it's also for the sake of the church so that we can recognize, okay, this person is a leader. Mm-hmm. So this is a process. So spiritual authority mm-hmm. um is practiced in the church by first recognizing people who have wisdom, who live by faith, who live by the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and choosing them to grant authority positionally. Yes. And, but it's first a moral authority that a person has because they walk with God. Right. Yeah. And this was really a part of that vision that I described, I don't know, four or five episodes back when I really, I, you know, I was asking... God, Holy Spirit, um, Jesus, um, how can we even do church without a general fund? And what I saw was a picture of leadership. You know what? What does hold this movement together? You know, in an in an institution. So let's just say <clears throat> that we're going to address homelessness, and we start a nonprofit. Hell. <laughs> And we started a nonprofit, okay? And um, how do we how do we organ how, you know how do we operate as a unit, right? Well, there there we have to set up a board, okay? And then, so that board is a is a authoritative group, and then that we create some sort of corporate identity, some sort of a tax ID. Um, that board then appoints uh, officers who will carry out the overarching vision of that um, organization. And, um, and so those people are given authority by the board. But ultimately, what, um, what determines whether this organization has any kind of influence is money. <laughs> you know? Like it, the money has to, has to be deposited toward the vision, but then... From there, it has to be administrated or executed by somebody, right? Without that structure, okay, and that can be true of anything. You don't need faith. You don't need God. Right. Who gets to spend the money or authorize the spending of money? Right. And then that make then that's the person who has the authority, right? Uh-huh. Whoever gets to choose how the money is spent has the power. And, and so that makes leadership a position of privilege, and you don't necessarily have to have divine endorsement to have that kind of institutional power. Okay. Mm-hmm. You could be someone who's respected in the community because of your business acumen and success, and you exactly. could be chosen to sit on the board. Since right. the board involves money, the church may want to have this person who's a successful business person on the board. And right. that may not be moral authority or spiritual authority. Sure. Or this person could be a wonderful, mature believer in Christ. And all we want is just to follow their lead and let them make decisions on our behalf. But you give them 10 years like that, and they're probably not going to be as mature as they were when we found them, you know, <laughs> because now they're beginning to count on this very visible, tangible power that's been put in their hands. Um, and that may not be healthy for them. Maybe they, maybe there's some sort of a saint and they can handle it. Most of the saints throughout history have not done well with it, you know, and have uh, rejected that sort of a thing, people who've truly been pursuing um, the spiritual authority. You know, I, and there is, um, there's a legend that goes, <clears throat> this is not true, but I think it's a, it's an instructive parable. Okay. So the, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the Monk 13th in the century, Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. right. Um, he rejected money. He actually called it dung, uh-huh. you know, um, because he'd seen, he grew up in privilege. He'd seen the corrosive influence it had in his own family. And, and so he had taken a vow of poverty and he'd lived that way. And, and the legend goes that he walks in and he sees the Pope with, you know, all this gold on his desk, you know, and these riches around him. And, and he says, see, Francis, <clears throat> the church can, can no longer say silver and gold. Have I none? 
To which Francis responds, neither can she say, rise and walk. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and while that's a legend and almost assuredly not true, but... Uh, it you makes know, the point. It makes the point. That, that he was making that, by that his life, this, by yes. his choices. Yep. But also, I think that the early church made through their life. Mm-hmm. That there was this presumed dependence on God, and they were there to preserve that. That had they created these organizational structures, which later, you know, become part of it, and we see that that really did result in some pretty grievous, grievous um, outcomes. But at any rate, the um, the way that power was assessed and conferred really had to do with the signs of spiritual maturity and endorsement from Jesus. And I know that's challenging. It's challenging for me because what I'm saying is, you know, oh, you say you're an apostle, then show me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most people are not going to meet that criteria in today's church. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> But Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, because there were people coming into the church. Anytime you have a group of people together, somebody's going to show up and declare themselves the leader. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. this is why I'm, I'm, if anyone suggests a leaderless organization, um, I, I'm like, okay, so you're the one. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're the one that aspires to have some sort of backdoor power over this group. Um and so that you know, it's concerning for me that everything nature hates a vacuum. I think society hates a vacuum. So what we have to have are leaders who are operating under a certain charter and that charter being the gospel and this expectation that they're going to have spiritual authority that to go with their positional authority. You know, I, I just, I just wondered, you know, it's just like, okay, so, why isn't, why don't we all have to just capitulate to the Pope? You know, I mean, the Catholic Church would say, well, we're the first ones, and everybody else is a heresy, a faction. We're the one, so since we're the first, we're the only ones with legitimate positional authority. Everybody else has just gone off and set up their own thing. I mean, how does this group, just because you got 10 people together, how do you decide now that you can give people authority? And why is that authority legitimate? I, I still wonder that from a positional standpoint. Upon what you, does you positional mean, standpoint in the church stand uh-huh. if you're not a Catholic? <laughs> you know, if, 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 if there is, if there is not, if, if, if authority is derived positionally, then why not be, why not then just throw it all in with the Roman Catholics? Cause they right. have the positional authority argument, right? But right. if authority is derived spiritually from God, then it right. opens the door for um, this yeah. informal spread mm-hmm. of the church outside of the boundaries of the positional authority right. defined church. Right, yeah. And so that's when I say it, you know, it's, it's spiritual authority because Paul, here's Paul as somebody who, and, and I think this was a critique on his ministry, which he's um, tangently addressing in the Galatian letter, that he did not, his apostleship did not come from Pentecost in Jerusalem. You know, here's somebody who is this little fire that starts off in, you know, um, Samaria, right? And um, Damascus. All of a sudden, there's this person who decides he's, you know, he's an apostle. Wait a minute, this is chaos. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden there's that guy over there in um, Corinth um, and Apollos. He decides he's an apostle. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute now. Who gets to decide this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this contention that, you know, how can you claim apostleship if it doesn't come from Jerusalem? And Paul says, the Jerusalem that is above is our mother, you know. Um, when we think of, of motherhood, honest, oftentimes the institution becomes the mother or the culture or the nation, right? Um, yeah, the motherland. The motherland, right. And so, honestly, you know, we are, it is that which nurtures us that becomes our mother on an, on an organizational level, that which enculturates us 
And so um, there was this contention, I think, in, in, among you know, the Judaizers in Galatia would say, who's this Paul guy? You know, the, his brand of Christianity is not the same as what's practiced in uh, Jerusalem. And, and um, how, what right does he have? He doesn't even come from, from that wellspring where it started. How dare he, right? Um, and I, mean, I think it's why Paul had to go to Jerusalem to settle this argument. He had to get this proclamation from Jerusalem. But his contention is that Jerusalem is not the headquarters of the church. If it were, then the church would be bound to a Jewish culture. And he's saying that the Jerusalem of this earth is a slave like Hagar in Sinai. And that the Jerusalem which is above is free and she is our mother. So if your church has a headquarters with a zip code, you're doing it wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so you think you think Paul was referring to the Jerusalem church? Yes. I always took him to be referring to the Jews in Jerusalem, Judaism. Um, contrasting that with, you know, God's authority in heaven. Sure. You think he's contrasting God's authority in heaven with the Jerusalem church? Yeah, well, in, yeah. In the context, because he's talking about the apostles in Jerusalem right. and mm-hmm. how he only had, you know, a relative regard for their authority. Right. Yeah. He says after, you know, after he met Jesus, he said, I did not go to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me went off into Arabia. Right. I mean, very much cutting the cords with any sort of a human um, dependency of his authority. And so that's, I guess that's what I'm saying. I want to be sure that I'm heard that, when I say that uh, leaders can ordain or endorse other leaders, develop them, don't think that I'm saying that there's a hierarchy in the church that is, you know, always coming down from the top. That there's uh-huh. this downline always coming, ultimately can be traced back to one individual. That's that's toxic. Okay, and so we have to have this interplay that where God is blessing something, where He's evidently showing up. Uh-huh where something's happening that defies human logic or, you know, prediction, reason, and um, God's grace is apparent. Um, And I think that God's grace ought to be apparent if, you know, if it's there, we should see it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so God has showed up and, and he seems that he's endorsed somebody. You think about when Cornelius's household receives the Holy spirit. Okay. And then Peter says, who are we to withhold water that these would be baptized? Who God has obviously chosen. Mm-hmm. So God made the choice. They just went along with it. Mm-hmm. So there, there, are, there are these two layers or levels, right? Mm-hmm. That there's this vertical level. There's this before God level. But then there's an interpersonal level. And those need to align. And so if somebody is obviously their ministry is endorsed by God, then, <clears throat> then the leaders ought to get on board, <laughs> you know. Um, and at the same time, if somebody is attempting to lead under God's calling and God's gifting, and yet the, uh, the human leaders are, they don't endorse that person. That person has an uphill battle, you know, and, and they almost seem divisive if they're not recognized. Um, <laughs> I'm arguing with myself here. Uh, but another scenario is where someone is gifted and, and yet they're not quite maybe uh, called or they're not um, mature yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that happened in Corinth. So Paul speaks of all the gifts that the Corinthians had. Mm-hmm. And yet they seem to be lacking in some grounding and some maturity too. Mm-hmm. So I think having that, this layer where the current leadership is supposed to recognize that second generation leadership or, and so on is also important to keep, um, to make sure that the church is not preyed upon by someone who maybe is charismatic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that would be a further reason. So there, that there is this, um, the leaders initially were called, 
you know, they had various names. One of them is um, where we get the, the term Episcopalian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Episcopos, uh, Episcopos, the bishop. Episcopos, yeah. The overseers. The overseers. Right. And so is, that's... Is, is, that, is that a different word from bishop? Or is that the same word as bishop? It's a, yeah, it's a word we use for bishop, uh-huh. but it actually, you know, it, apart from all of the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical titles, it's... Uh, it just simply means, you know, to look over, to uh-huh. oversee. Uh-huh. So here are people who are just responsible to watch out for the group. Uh-huh. Their role is primarily protective. Now, uh, in the synagogue, and and I, I think we have to recognize that the first century church was just doing synagogue on Sunday. <laughs> You that was know, their model. Right. This wasn't some, you know, when Jesus says on this rock, I'll build my church, he didn't, you know, he didn't have in mind all of this procedural stuff. Okay. That he didn't have in mind some sort of religious ritual or house of worship or whatever we think of church as, as being some sort of replacement for temple worship or whatever, the temple cult. But rather when he said, I will build my church, he just means a group of people you know, gathered around me, right? Yeah. And and um, who are like Peter, who confessed me like Peter did. Um, so that's the church. How we're organized and all this is not, man, it's not part of the equation, okay? Um, like whether you have an elder board right. and deacons or whether you have deacons only or whether you have a senior right. pastor or, you know, all right. of that, all yeah. the structural stuff yeah. is not relevant. Of course, yeah. That stuff came from, synagogue. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an innovation. It wasn't like received by divine revelation. It was simply, this was something that the Jews had done during an exilic period. And here's the church. We are an exilic kingdom. Here's how you do community in exile. Mm-hmm. You, you meet at least weekly. You've got a, a set of elders who preside over those meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, those meetings are participatory. They at least, you know, you think about when Paul and Barnabas hit town and um, <clears throat> I think in Corinth and they're like, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the community or whatever, say on, mm-hmm. you know, some random person walks in and, and you're like, if you have a word of encouragement, say on, I mean, we don't really do that in church, right? It's mm-hmm. very controlled what comes from the front, but in the first century, they were just basing it. You know, there, there's this assumption that every Jewish man um, was an equal you know, and that they had experience of Torah. And so they could come and speak. Or possibly Paul's reputation preceded him, and they thought, yep. this, this guy, we've heard of him? Maybe, but it seems to me that it was an open, that synagogue mm-hmm. was an open forum. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jesus gets up, you know, he hits town in Nazareth, he gets up, mm-hmm. and, he, and he reads the scroll, yep. you know. Any, any literate Jewish man, by this time... <clears throat> Any Jewish man would have been literate, would have had at least 10 years of, of Torah mm-hmm. training, um, and so could get up yeah. and at least read and, and maybe comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so this is a very participatory gathering. And, I mean, synagogue is, it, you know, you can't get any more um, in the name synagogue. You know, you can't get any more basic or, or mm. organic than get together. I mean, you know, a synagogue, I think, would translate straight across as get together. Get together. Yeah. yeah. We could name a church. <clears throat> we could name a simple church. Get together. The get together. Yeah. <laughs> or we could just call our meetings a get together. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what we'd call it in the South, right? But if you if you invite people to a get together, mm-hmm. does that, you know, are people expecting right. there to it's, be a stage? It's organizationally flat. Right. You know, you can't get much more flat than a get together. And we could learn from that. Like you have said, you know, we're not trying to replicate the this, uh, the organizational structure of their right. church, but we can also learn from it. Like they had a group of leaders and not a mm-hmm. single leader, right? And so on and so forth. Yeah, and but and those leaders' job was to watch out for the church, or the synagogue, you know, the the congregation. So if somebody does come in and you say, "Brothers, say on," and they start saying stuff that, you know, is at least against traditional rabbinic Judaism at that time, you would be like, you know, guys don't say on next time, just next time you come back, just sit there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that, but that was the extent of their authority. They're not going to throw somebody out or whatever. This They're is, just going to be like, we are not 
going to allow for a poisonous doctrine to be official, officially right. spread here. Which is what we said we were going to talk about today. Yeah. That they're going to safeguard the church from threats through sound teaching. So even where they let other people speak, they're going to do that. They're going to let other people speak, mm-hmm. but they're going to tell them to shut shut up and sit down if necessary. Right. Yeah, and, the, and so they are seen as, and that's why positional authority is important for order. Mm-hmm. Because if the elder says, okay, you need to stop now. If you don't have positional authority, the other guy's going to be like, who are you? Right? Mm-hmm. He's just going to keep going. But if the whole group's like, oh, he, he said that that guy should stop. You know, we're not going to listen to him anymore. And that guy knows, well, I don't have a hearing here. I don't have an entree. It shut it down early. Mm-hmm. And I know that... That may seem uh, like top down or something to people, but I, I think that, that the realities are that we do have to have leadership. But if the leadership is expected to be people who demonstrate spiritual maturity first, and then people who've gone through the vetting by the community, then those people ought to be able to both teach. I mean, one of the requirements for an elder is that they're able to teach. And so. Not only does this person have a corrective or a preventative leadership role in that they can disallow somebody who is bringing something unhealthy to the group, uh, but they ought to be regularly bringing health to the group in their, from the well of their experience, their maturity as, as they are teaching the group. So that's the kind of leadership I see in a, in a simple church is that people who are regularly ministering the gospel who have demonstrated um, spiritual authority and who um, are able to develop next generation leaders because this group if a simple church of necessity has an upper limit in terms of its size you know we can meet outdoors for only so long (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know uh, like that first church, you know, there's 3,000, 5,000. They're meeting in Solomon's porch, okay? But when wintertime comes, it's going to be harder, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then obviously a persecution comes and scatters everybody. Uh, and then what happens to the movement if you haven't been developing leaders along the way and you don't have a vehicle for that next generation mm-hmm. of leadership, you're in trouble. So that's kind of what I envision with it that we would just be able to do that. Now, I think that there's room for whatever leadership structures work, you know, but we do have to ask, you know, is this, is this leadership structure, this approach to leadership good for the group? Does it make us an ever, ever tightening and ever widening group? You know, are we becoming ever closer in our love and regard for each other while we're becoming ever more diverse? I do think that that those two directions demonstrate health in a church. Um, If your church is becoming completely uniform, something's wrong. If your church is um, very loosely connected, something's wrong. Um, And so we ask, are these, you know, is this group growing closer and more diverse. I think that, and, and then we have to ask, you know, are the individuals becoming more mature? Are they demonstrating manifest pleasure of God uh, over their lives as he's uh, pouring out his gifts on them? As we're seeing answers to prayer, we're seeing um, God giving new insights into his purpose. Um, then that's good. If those things are, are drying up, you know, if, if we are, if we are not saying the presence of Jesus among us, if that's just not obvious, then, then that's a symptom of something's gone wrong and we need to stop and recalibrate. So I don't mean to prescribe the way it must be done. I'm just saying that there are signs of health Mm -hmm. and we have to try to pursue those. And those are just thinking this yesterday, you know, the standard is much more implicit. It's not going to come and slap us across the face with every infraction. (laughs) We've got to be attentive. We've got to be aware, you know, is this, is this moving me as a person closer to Jesus or not? Is, 
And sometimes those things are insidious. We have to be really honest with ourselves. We have to let others speak into our lives and say, you know, I don't think that thing's healthy for you. I don't think, I don't see that helping you. And, and we have to listen, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so when I say these things, I don't mean to say this is the right way to do church and everyone should do church like this. I'm just saying to me, it looks like these decisions came out of a desire to maintain health in the community, um, to maintain freedom, to bring order to a group of people that are also free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, uh, I don't know if that's a tension or not, but on the one hand, the gospel mandates that we be free and not controlled by other people, but rather led by the Holy spirit mm-hmm. led by our, uh, our walk with God, our conscience before God. Yeah. And yet there's an order and a structure to that community that, uh, where there are, there's leadership, there's protection, uh, and there's guidance, but it's for the purpose of protecting people's freedom. Right. Right. And I, I think that there, it also needs to be said that the presence of heretics in the group was assumed by Paul and by the other apostles. Um, that these dynamics in the church, while the elders would have been seen as presiding over the group, um, that they did not have uh, this heavy handed top down authority about who could come to church there or what, even what they could say privately to other Christians, you know? So let's say I'm there and I've got some uh, newfangled ideas or things that, that the current leadership sees as destructive. And they say, Hey, you know, we're not going to recognize you as a teacher in this group because we think that what you're saying is unhealthy, you know? And, and I say, okay, that's fine. You know, I, I, people still listen to me, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go over here on Monday night and we're going to have our own little Bible study and we're going to, you know, and I started getting a following and all that. Um, it doesn't seem that they, that the leadership in the first century, at least would have even attempted to, to shut that group down. Um, what I see in scripture in various places is that the that Paul and John at least recognized that there were going to be heresies in the group and that that was not only it wasn't uh, you know it was a it was a feature and not a bug as we would say today Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 11 he says that you know I hear that there are these factions among you and 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 he says and it must be that way so that those who are approved will be apparent <laughs> yeah. It has a purpose. God has a yeah. purpose in there being these factions, these heretical groups. Right. Yeah. I mean, as he's writing to Romans, to the Romans in Romans 1, he says that I want to come and, and impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. That suggests a group of people who their, ba- their borders are really fuzzy. You know, curious Jews, seeker Gentiles. Um, you know, there are people all over the spectrum, maybe who would have been meeting with that church, who many of them may have considered themselves Christians. Some may have considered themselves the only Christians. I mean, we, I think we, we can't fully appreciate what it was like to be in this burgeoning movement where things were just largely unknown, many things. And, and instead of just getting together, I mean, they did that one time on, on circumcision, which I think was critical, but they didn't maintain some church council that was always handing down edicts. Um, they realized that this is going to be a chaotic group, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that there was going to be heresies and false teachings and all of that. And then that they didn't see that as something that just had to be stopped, just arrested, that the church had to be maintained as pure, that they, they realized that, that the gospel was strong enough to stand on its own two feet, you know, and maybe put a different way, a different way, which I think sometimes you also talk this other way. Mm. Jesus is Lord of his church and he can deal with those people, right? He can rule and judge mm-hmm. and see to it that if that group needs to get shut down, then they will get shut down. They will get dispersed. Something will happen. And under his providence, providential right. guidance, mm-hmm. definitely and we make space for that. Right. Yeah, I mean, John spoke of some people who had left and started their own movement in First John. And he says, 
Of course they did. You know, they weren't, they weren't Christians, <laughs> you know, that this wasn't something that was forced on them. They chose to leave. And, and when he speaks of somebody who threw people out of the church, it wasn't ever a positive thing. You know, he speaks of Diotrephes who chooses to, chooses to have the preeminence and throws people out of the church. You know, that that's, that that's a heavy handed top down, um, approach that was not endorsed by the apostles that they seem to think if somebody comes in and they are saying something um, unhealthy or poisonous that that will be recognized that the that the gospel is so uh, so superior to its counterfeits that while there may be some counterfeits that come up if the true gospel is preached and um you know it's ministered by those who have this have the holy spirit that the genuine article is always going to win and and i think that's critically important because um you know if you consider movements like the jehovah's witnesses and the mormons in america today or um even islam in in muslim countries um they disallow dissenting viewpoints mm-hmm Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're a Mormon, you're taught this is true. Don't listen to somebody who criticizes this message. Mm -hmm. Not only mm -hmm. is it wrong to criticize the message, but it's wrong to listen to the criticisms. Now, if somebody comes and tells you that, you know, if somebody says what I'm saying is true. Now, other people may disagree with me. Don't listen to them. What does that say about me? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. How do you hear that? If I were to say what I'm saying is true. If someone disagrees with me later, don't listen to what they have to say. Right. You're trying to manipulate me. Right. Yeah. And so they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, it's not, it doesn't just feel that way. It is that way. Mm -hmm. And it's that way every time. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that in the church that there, that we tend to slide that way on and people, you know, pastors and their little fiefdoms and, and they just want this group of people to agree with their every opinion, their every interpretation of the new Testament and Hey, my way's right. And anything else is wrong and don't listen to them and don't say otherwise, or you're out. That's diatrophies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, really faith. I think if, if we have faith as leaders then we're going to have faith that God is going to deal with heretics if they need dealing with. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, we can be okay with that. And we have the humility also that we know we're wrong in some places too. Mm -hmm. We're just doing the best we can. Right. Yeah. And Paul says, uh, so this idea that it's a feature and not a bug, right? Paul says that in a great house, there are many vessels, right? Mm -hmm. Some to honor and some to dishonor. Mm -hmm. And so, and he's, he's saying that of people who are false teachers, right? People who have maybe wicked motives even mm -hmm. in the group. And, and he's saying that, you know, Hey, that chamber pot isn't just, isn't some evil that you have to deal with. It's there for a reason, you know? Um, and so that's a, that's a radical statement about how we view the purity of the group. Mm-hmm. Whereas we would want everybody to be this Get in golden chalice, right? We all want them to be the, um, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, this decanter for the finest wine. Mm -hmm. Some people are the chamber pot mm -hmm. and, um, you need them both. <laughs> they both have a purpose. Yeah. Um, and is the purpose, the, 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 the purifying and the refining, like as we struggle through differences and, um, and unhealthy teachings and practices that like having to face those unhealthy practices, unhealthy teachings actually helps us sharpen our understanding of what is healthy and true and good and right. right. And it helps us grow. Right. And so God allows those things, those yeah. unhealthy, those weeds to grow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when he says that there must be divisions among you so that those who are chosen will be manifested. Um, really, honestly, Christian variants are a great way to see that there is a true Christianity. And the way you see it is, is that one kind doesn't work and one kind does. One way you know that your Christianity doesn't work is if you have to tell people not to listen to dissenting views. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if if I tell you something and you try it and it works, you know. I don't have to sell this thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, if I just had to sell it and sell it and sell it and I just got to, you know, patch it and make up reasons why it didn't work that time and all this, mm-hmm. it's kind of demonstrating that that was wrong at mm-hmm. the outset. Yeah. And you also look at the fruit of people's lives. I mean, ultimately right. your argument is going to be what is, which, which teaching, um, liberates people from sin and, right and which does which which actually uh, uh just brings people into conformity right which teaching causes people to flourish mm-hmm. in love and in their uniqueness and in their giftedness right and which just keeps people enslaved right now unfortunately i think what's happened in our day and age and maybe in the intervening years is that <sighs> I don't know, man. We haven't we haven't seen as much authentic um, Christianity because we we just haven't assumed that this is supposed to be predicated on the faith of the Son. I think we've assumed that it's predicated on agreement to a doctrinal statement: Jesus died for your sins, and that that's saving faith. Whereas, if we understood that, no, this is this is trust in the Father and uh, the expectation of resurrection power flooding into. Um, a vacuum left from cruciform suffering. Okay. If that was seen as the engine of the gospel, then the authentic would be so much more obvious. But somewhere along the line, we came to see faith as just belief in a proposition rather than the covenant that we have with God, the, the actual living experience of God. Um, I, I think that if we regain that definition of faith, the rest is going to kind of sort itself out. Hey, I heard you writing a book about that, Nathan. I am. <laughs> uh, well, well, more on that later, and maybe we'll pick up with that next week. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. If you have questions, if you'd like to continue the conversation, email us to discussion at recoverfaith.org.